Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation 14. Revelation chapter 14. Last week we began uh, this chapter as we looked at the Lamb and 144,000 standing on Mount Zion. And that was the first of three wonderful visions or scenes that we find in this chapter. And these, these redeemed out of the earth, it says, are singing a new song that no one could learn except those redeemed from the earth, which means we can't learn that song yet. But I'm looking forward to the day that we can. I was thinking about this, that this week and the opportunity to speak to someone who is a musician, to speak to them of Christ, to talk of, there's this song that nobody can learn except those who are redeemed out of the earth. Wouldn't you love to learn that song? I just think that might be an interesting approach. But we have this glorious picture here of those who've loosed their bonds from this life, and they're resting now, and they're rejoicing in the presence of the Lord Jesus in heaven. There are two more scenes that we find in the chapter. And this chapter concludes in it's Revelation 12, 13, 14, concludes the third cycle of judgment depicted in the book of Revelation. Not, not that there's going to be seven cycles of judgment actually happening. It's seven depictions of the judgment of God happening now, temporarily, and concluding eternally at the last day. And as we'll see, this chapter concludes this, this cycle. It ends with the last great harvest, the harvest of the saints who are taken in glory to heaven, but also the harvest of those who reject God and refuse to believe in Him. And so, we find this, this, this depiction of that last day approaching in these verses. So, please follow. I'll read Revelation 14. I'll begin reading in verse 6. John writes, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb." And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel who uh, came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat on the cloud 
he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who has the authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as horses' bridle for 1,600 stadia. So we have two somber and, and solemn scenes, sobering scenes of the angels coming and declaring the end. First of all, before the end takes place, we have uh, in verse uh, 6 and 7, an angel who comes and proclaims, as it, is, as it were, one last time, the gospel of Jesus Christ to every tribe and nation and language and people, and saying, Get, fear God, give him glory, for the hour of judgment has come. It's one final appear, uh, excuse me, one final appeal to all the earth. Now, at first glance, it doesn't seem to be a message of grace. It doesn't seem to be a message of mercy that we would associate with the gospel message. There's no apparent mention here of the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ, but there is mercy in this call. It's like one last time I'm telling you, judgment's coming. Fear God. Give him glory. You know, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, there is a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some will do that with great joy and rejoicing, but others will do that to their everlasting shame. So here is the angel giving them one more opportunity before that great and terrible day. Turn now. Give him glory now. Fear God now. But we know that many will just keep going about their business as if they have their, their fingers stuck in their ears, totally ignoring this call for repenting, for turning to the Lord, for entrusting themselves to him. They refused to hear God. They refuse to give him the glory that he deserves, and they will one day confess to their everlasting shame that Christ is indeed the Lord. So the first angel is giving them this, this one final chance to turn away from their rejection of God, to fear him, to give him the glory that he deserves before it is too late. And he says here the reason why we should give God glory is because he created everything that there is. The psalmist says in Psalm 96, verse 4 and 5, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He's to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. What a comparison. Nations of the world created by man out of wood and stone and other man-made or iron, what other, other man-fashioned uh, images, and then the Lord who made the heavens. Take your pick. Great is the Lord. He is to be feared above all the gods. So the proclamation here is to fear the Lord, to worship him, to serve him, to give him praise. And again, there is grace here because it's giving us light and saying, turn away from those false gods, from those broken cisterns that can never, ever satisfy. Worship the one true God. And there is implicit in this call 
Fear God. Give him glory. There's implicit that God will receive your worship. God will receive you. And you will have life. There's an urgency in this proclamation we see in verse 7. Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. It's as if it's one final appeal. Become a worshiper of God now, before it's too late. It's clear from what follows that many still will not listen. They will not, uh, they will not turn from going their own way. They'll go about their own business, shutting their ears, hardening, hardening their hearts, refusing to listen, because as the Proverbs says, there's no fear before their eyes. That's a, de- that's a definition of a fool, no fear of God before his eyes. They would even say, who is the Lord that I should give him glory? They're enamored by the attractions of this world, so caught up in the pleasures and the glory the world promises. They refuse to believe their situation is urgent. They refuse to believe judgment is imminent. I'm afraid there are many people who grew up in church, maybe some here tonight, you know these things are true in theory, but you, it just seems like you've got plenty of time. It's not a big deal. You can put it off. You can wait. Let me urge you, listen. Listen carefully. Give me your full attention right now. Because the urgency of this plea appeals whether the Lord comes today or tomorrow or a hundred or a thousand years from now. Because you have no guarantee that you will have tomorrow. You have no idea when he will come, and if you haven't bowed the knee before that, it will be too late. So if you are holding out, and you are refusing to bow the knee and submit your heart and repent of your sins and turn to the Lord, you are engaging in the greatest cosmic gamble ever, and I promise you it's a losing proposition. How do you know he will not require your life at your hands, even this very knife? Luke 12 tells, Jesus tells a parable of a a rich man, and he had this huge harvest. There was so much uh, gathered in from this harvest that his barns couldn't contain it all. So he said, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger barns. I'll store all those possessions there, and then I can relax and say to myself, take your rest, eat, drink, and be merry. And the Lord says to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Whether Jesus comes back for the entire world or whether the Lord comes and ends your life, there's no guarantee when that will be. And the only way to be sure that on that day we are safe is now. Now's the day of salvation. Now's the day to turn and come to him. Young people, hear me. You've grown up. You've heard heard these truths. In fact, you've heard these truths so much, sometimes you can get kind of used to them and think, okay, well, you know, yeah, I've heard that before, Pastor. It's, it's, yeah, uh-huh, I've heard that. Is there any fear of God in your eyes? Or are you just kind of used to it? Is there any genuine concern for his glory? Or are you kind of wound up in your own pleasure, having a good time, doing what you want to do, going your way? Don't deceive yourself with this hope that says it'll never happen to me. Because every single one of us one day will stand before the judgment seat of God. And it will happen to you. 
And so I urge you now, tonight, here, fear God, give Him glory, turn to Him, and submit to Him as your Lord and Savior. The world around us, it, it, it's offering all kinds of enjoyment, all kinds of pleasure. Pastor Mark referred this morning to these Instagram heroes that we see, and, and, and they're, uh, they're so attractive, and they have all this stuff, and you think, I want to be like them. That's what worship is, by the way. Worship is emulation. I want to be like that person. I want to have what they have. Well, do you want to be like Jesus and have what He has? That's worship. And if you can't imagine turning away from all that fun and all that enjoyment, I would ask you, are you willing to gamble with your soul? If you are kind of waffling on that, I want you to consider the next verses. Because verse 8, another angel comes, a second followed, saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, this is the first time in Revelation that Babylon is mentioned. And it's very interesting to me, and many other interpreters note this, that the first time you find Babylon mentioned, it's not in the great havoc and power that Babylon wreaks over the world, it's the fact that Babylon's defeated. That's the first time we see Babylon mentioned in Revelation, is fallen as Babylon the great. And the angel announces the destruction of Babylon as if it were already an accomplished fact. Now, when we get to chapter 17 and 18, we're going to deal with the fall of Babylon in a lot more detail. But Babylon, in the book of Revelation, Vern Poitras calls it the center of false worship. It's you have the, the, the city, the New Jerusalem, and you have the contrast of Babylon, the seductress, the center of false worship. Now, this term Babylon the Great, we actually find it, remember the Old Testament is sort of the, the interpretive grid for much of Revelation. We find this term in the book of Daniel. And in that day, it was really Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar that oppressed the people of God and took them into captivity. And for the early church, Babylon didn't exist anymore, but Babylon was represented by Rome. And here, this angel describes Babylon as she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Dennis Johnson says that term passion isn't speaking of lustful passion, it's rage. It's like, it's like this harlot engaging in sexual immorality and raging at anyone who would criticize her for doing so, seducing people into her destructive lifestyle and, 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 and being enraged at those who refuse. And if we look at Rome, what do we see? Rome is exemplified by things like rampant immorality. Rome was, it was a very immoral place. There was this ostentatious display of wealth, and there were phenomenal uh, 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 displays of, of prosperity as they would go into nation after nation, and like they did with Israel, and they taxed them to death practically, and take that money that they would extract from all these conquered nations, and they would fatten their war chests and fatten their uh, their art museums and fatten their uh, construction projects with this ostentatious display of great wealth, but then also cruel, oppressive power. And that was the case in original Babylon. That was the case in Rome. And that's been in the case in representations of Babylon 
throughout the ages, the spirit of godlessness that seduces and oppresses uh, the world and opposes the people of God. It exerts powerful influence over the nations. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. People were drunk on the message of Babylon. Now hear me. We live in a world today that is, as it were, drunk on the message of Babylon. They're totally taken in and oblivious to the fact that they are following this destructive, this, this wicked principle called Babylon the Great because they're opposed to the one true God. Babylon seduces the world with luxuries and pleasures. It's intoxicating, it's enslaving, it's degrading, and it's dehumanizing. It places the world in bondage to things like darkness and even madness and rages at any who would oppose her. Do you see that going on in our day-to-day? I do. So here's this proclamation, this second angel crying out, fallen is Babylon the great. Now let me just stop and ask you the question. If you are not bound for the new Jerusalem, then you are a citizen of Babylon the great. I want to ask you, does that look like a good deal? All the promises that Babylon holds out will be exposed as lies. Now, at this point, many will be looking and saying, that, that, that's just impossible. This world system is so big and so strong and so powerful, it will never, ever topple. That's what they thought about Rome. The idea that Babylon would fall was incomprehensible to the secular mind. But on that day, the pomp and the pleasure and the riches and the treasure and the glitter and the glitz, it will all come crashing down, be utterly destroyed. Babylon will fall and rise no more, crushed under the anvil of the wrath of our God. I don't want to be there, and I don't want you to be there either. Well, the third angel comes in verses 9 and following, and he pronounced judgment on all those who worship the beast. Follow as I read, another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or, or its hands, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. You know, in chapter 13, it talks about this mark of the beast, not a physical tattoo, a visible mark, but the allegiance of life to Satan and his minions and to his kingdom. It's like a, a passport that I belong to Babylon. And all, only those who receive that mark can buy and sell and do business. And the beast attacks all those who don't have the mark. So it sounds like, man, I probably ought to get that mark then if I want to buy and sell and do business and not get attacked, right? Well, now we find all those who get the mark of the beast, what happens to them? They're subject to death. Or excuse me, they, they're, they're, there's a worse fate than that death. The angel proclaims on them an eternal judgment, not only on the beast, but on his followers as well. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, pour full strength into the cup of his anger. Now, we find this language again in the Old Testament. Jeremiah is told, God says to him, take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath. 
and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And when they drink it, they'll stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. Now, in that context, that is an indication of temporal judgment as kingdoms fell, as wicked kingdoms met that temporal judgment. The collapse of an empire, they're being carried off into bondage and captivity by another nation. But the, 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 the judgment that is being proclaimed here in Revelation chapter 14 is eternal. It says, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. This is graphic language. The wine, or the, the wine of God's wrath has been poured full strength into the, into the cup of his anger. In other words, it's saying this, this wrath is not going to be tempered in any way. This judgment will come down full strength on those who are subject to it. There will be no mercy. There will be no relief. You recall the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man had comforts in this life, and Lazarus was a poor beggar. And the, the rich man died, and he was an ungodly man, and so he was in torment. And Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, and the rich man is crying out, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to, to dip just uh, his finger in some water and cool my tongue, for I am in torment. And what we find here is it's day and night, forever and ever, no rest, no relief, no respite, and no refuge. Everyone who pledges allegiance to the beast will be forced to drink the, the cup of God's wrath. That's a terrifying thing to think about. We can say these words and not think about what it really means, but if we stop and, and consider just how awful this is, it's terrifying. The wrath is described as torment with burning sulfur, now, that sort of sounds like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Burning sulfur. The problem is, Sodom and Gomorrah, they were destroyed, and that was it. But here, the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. Their judgment has no end. It's not just the smoke of God's judgment. It's unending torment. Now, there are professed evangelicals in recent years who, they have a hard time harmonizing the wrath of God with the love of God. They, they believe that God will punish sin, but they can't imagine that God would actually subject someone to eternal torment. And so they've come up with a doctrine called annihilationism. You die, you're annihilated, you burn up as it were, and that's it. That's mercy. That's mercy that the torment ends. There is no mercy. Judgment never ends for the enemies of God. Judgment never reduces or diminishes for those who refuse to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and give Him glory. Judgment goes on forever and ever. We read here the wine of God's wrath is poured full strength into the cup of His anger. There's no mercy there. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. Now, I find that an amazing statement. I've heard for years, hell is the absence of the presence of God. 
Well, here it says they'll be suffering hell, and the, the, the angels and the Lord Jesus will be standing there as if they were looking upon him and going, he is Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord. All those years I, I, I denied him. Now I must confess once again that he is Lord of the glory of God the Father, yet there's no relief by that confession. It's to their everlasting shame and misery, tormented by their utter folly. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, no relief, no mercy. There's this conscious, unending torment in the presence of Jesus and the holy angels. That's exactly what Jesus taught during his ministry. And in Mark chapter 9, he spoke of hell as a place where the fire never goes out. In Matthew 25, in the the parable of the sheep and the goats, he turns to the goats and he says, depart from me. You who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And as I mentioned a moment ago, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he was in torment. He he didn't burn up, and he would never get relief. Young people, hear me. Older people, pay attention. This is not something you want to trifle with. This is something we must take seriously. Hell is a place of torment. It's a place of eternal hopelessness and despair. Let me say that again. Hell is a place of eternal hopelessness and eternal despair. You don't want any of that. You don't want to risk going there. No hope of any relief. No hope of deliverance. It's judgment with no mercy. There's no rest, day or night. Imagine for a minute, eternal, unquenchable agony, torment. When people are taken hostage by enemy governments, sometimes a torture that they use is simply to keep them awake day after day after day, to break them down and to give them no rest, no sleep. And if you continue in that condition of no sleep, day after day, you become psychotic. You, 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 you come apart. You can imagine that, day after day, year after year, millennia after millennia of utter insanity and suffering with no hope of ever gaining relief. You're beyond your saturation point. You're beyond any point that you could ever have imagined. It's greater suffering than you ever could have thought possible. As awful as the worst disease in this life can be, it is infinitely greater. People will beg to be annihilated. The kings of the earth will cry out for the mountains to fall on them and to deliver them from the wrath of the Lamb because this torment has no end and no comfort and no hope. It is just as eternal as heaven is. So don't deceive yourselves and say, well, that can never happen to me. That's the the eternal destiny of every man, woman, boy, and girl is one place or the other. You're in the new Jerusalem. You're in Babylon. For all eternity, new heaven and new earth are hell. And there's no middle ground and there's no second chances. So, 
consider how terrifying that is. And if you're having trouble seeing that this, this really could happen, how could God do that? Well, our problem is that we don't see things from God's perspective. We don't understand that He truly is holy. We don't understand that He is infinite in His glory and that rebellion against Him is cosmic. But on that day, Christian, you will agree with God absolutely 100%. You will see things for what they really are, and you will recognize the glory of God, and you will recognize the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And you will be in absolute agreement with the justice, the rightness of His wrath poured out on His enemies, those who reject His authority, those who reject His love and His mercy, that invitation to come while there's yet time. Now, the angel, or John, I guess, says here, is a call, verse 12, here's a call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Consider the persecution of the saints inflicted by the beast, the great hardship upon those who refuse to receive his mark, and then the terrible judgment falling on those who did receive his mark, and suddenly there's new hope. If we persevere to the end, he will reward his children. He will take us to himself. He calls us to endure because he calls us overcomers. And sometimes in the midst of trial, we might find ourselves asking the question, is it worth it? And the angel gives us the reassurance, yes, it is worth it. In fact, he gives us this blessing. In verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. In the book of Revelation, there are a number of benedictions. Blessed are those. First one is in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. That's the first benediction. Here in chapter 14, we have the second benediction. Does anybody just, I don't know, random guess, how many benedictions do you think we would find in Revelation? Seven? Did somebody say seven? Good guess. You're right. Exactly right. Five more blessed to follow. And there's a promise here of great blessing, all those who die in the Lord. That's not just the martyrs. That's anyone who has cast off the bonds of humanity, of mortality. Not humanity, but of mortal humanity. Cast off these, this mortal body and is taken into glory. Their blessing is that we may rest from our labors and their deeds follow them, an end to labor, an end to suffering or sorrow or, or hardship or struggles of the soul or battles with this world. And it says their deeds will follow them. Jesus said, not even a cup of cold water given in my name will fail to be rewarded. And God will keep his promise to reward every good work done in his name and for the glory of his son. I love the hymn, For All the Saints. For all the saints who from their labors rest, who, who thee by faith before the world confess thy name, O Jesus. For all the saints resting now in their labors who confessed the name of Jesus, may they be forever blessed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I love that hymn. 
I'm afraid some might be more interested in immediate pleasure than eternal blessing. I promise you, I promise you, if you harden your heart, if you forfeit this great blessing, you will regret it for all eternity, and you will say, what a fool I was. Because the unbeliever reaps the harvest of that which he has sown, eternal destruction. The believer reaps the harvest of what he has sown in faith in Jesus Christ. So, let's, in the time we have left, let's look at this third scene, this final scene from verse 14 to the end, the harvest of the earth and the eternal judgment. John sees in uh, verse 14, one, he sees a white cloud and one seated on the cloud like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Who do you think that is? One like a son of man, golden crown on his head, sickle in his hand. It could be none other than the Lord Jesus himself, crowned with many crowns, with authority over all of the world, judgment placed into his hand. Daniel, in fact, speaks of Messiah as one like a son of man. Now, in verse 1, we see the Lamb on Mount Zion with 144,000 already with him, secure in heaven. Here, he's now taking the remainder of redeemed humanity to himself, as we'll see in a moment. This golden crown speaks of all authority that he's been given in heaven and on earth. The sickle, the authority to complete judgment. Remember in the parable of the weeds, Matthew 13, at the end of the parable, Jesus said the reapers will go and they will, they will gather the wheat and they'll put it in barns and then they'll gather up all of the, the, the weeds that have been sown by the enemy in this field. They'll gather them up in bundles and they'll burn them. And so we see that being played out here. And verse 16 tells us, he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped with one fell swoop as it were. That's all it took. The end of the world. History as we know it is summed up in that one verse. He swung his sickle, and the earth was reaped. Now, there's, there's debate among interpreters. Is this reaping here the very same as what we'll see in a moment where grapes are reaped? And I think the best explanation is, no, these are separate. Jesus is reaping the harvest of saints. And with the second sickle, the angel is reaping a harvest of those subject to the wrath of God. This is the final gathering, in-gathering of the church, the saints. Now, we're going to see what our blessedness will be in subsequent chapters. It, it really just says, they're reaped, and it goes on and talks about wrath. But later on, we'll see what a glorious ending we will have. But I love this emphasis because this, the one who does the reaping here is Jesus. He gathers us to himself. He has the sickle. He reaps. But meanwhile, another angel comes out in verse 17. And another angel came out of the temple, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put your sickle in and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for the grapes are ripe. So the clusters of gra grapes are gathered, just like the wheat was gathered in the first reaping. But those grapes are gathered and thrown into a large vat, a wine press. And in, in 
those early days, the, the gatherers would gather the grapes and they'd put them in a vat. And then, I hope they would wash their feet before they do this, but they'd take their shoes off and they would stomp on the grapes until the juice flowed out and they would let it ferment and make wine. That's what a wine press is. You pressed it with your feet, stomping down the grapes, crushing them until the juice flowed. So this wine press vision represents the final destruction of the wicked. The vine of the earth is all humanity who are apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. They're thrown together in this wine press of God's wrath, and they're crushed. And it tells us, In verse 20, the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for about 1,600 stadia. That's somewhere around 180 miles. Can you imagine blood flowing in a span of 180 miles, five feet high, the harvest of sinful humanity and the wrath of God poured out upon them? And while you might think, well, that means they died, right? Well, earlier it says that their torment never ends. Their mortal bodies, we we all die, but then they receive a new resurrection that is, again, tormented forever and ever and ever. Now, in Revelation chapter 6, the last three verses... 15 to 17, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for great is the day of their wrath, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand? It is only those who have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In just a moment, Rich is going to come and lead us in the hymn, The Power of the Cross. And one of the verses we'll sing says, Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin, every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your blood-stained brow. Please hear me. Every bitter thought, every evil deed will be paid for. That awesome weight of sin will be borne by someone The Lord Jesus willingly bore that weight of sin for everyone who would ever place their trust in him. But those who refuse to place their trust in him, you bear the weight yourself. And I promise you, it's more terrible than you can possibly imagine. That final judgment, eternal torment in hell, these are not popular topics. People don't like to talk about these things today. They're not things that we enjoy preaching on. Pastor Mark asked me how you're doing right before the sermon, and I said, I can't wait to get up and preach about hell. It's not something we, we're not cheerleaders for the wrath of God, but we must warn you, lest you take these things lightly. The reality is people don't want to hear a whole lot about heaven either because they want heaven here on earth, but they certainly don't want to hear anything about hell because it's just too inconvenient. It's It's unpleasant. But those, heaven and hell are the two great realities from which no one can escape. Every man, woman, boy, or girl will be in one place or the other for all eternity. So do something for me. Look across your pew. Look around. Everyone you see is going to be one place or the other. Every single person, heaven or hell. Think about the people who live on your street. Every single one will be one place or the other, heaven or hell. 
people in your family, people in your workplace, your classmates, your colleagues, your friends, heaven or hell? If you could hold a mirror up and look in it, ask yourself the question, where will I be, heaven or hell? Are you trifling with things that matter the most? Are you not taking seriously the most serious issues of the entire of your entire life? Are you laying up treasures on earth where Jesus said moth and rust will destroy and thieves will break in and steal? Have you set your heart on gaining the whole world and in the process forfeiting your soul? Or like the rich fool, are you deceiving yourself thinking you can just eat, drink, and be merry and never imagine that you will actually have to answer to a holy God? Are you wasting your life on things that will not satisfy broken cisterns that hold no water? And in doing so, ensuring for yourself eternity and torment. That's the most hopeless situation possible. And, and you, can, you can look at, at places in our world that just seem utterly hopeless. And like there's no solution to this. It just doesn't seem like it's ever going to get better. People whose lives are just totally broken. And, and, and you can't imagine how we could find, ever find a solution and those, the sorrow and the hopelessness of that pales in significance with eternity. So I urge you, if you're not a Christian, turn to the Lord Jesus, even tonight. You, you don't know if the Lord's going to come and say, this night I will require your life of your hands. Fear the Lord and give him glory. There's mercy for all who will do that. Now, if you are a Christian and you say, my heart is steadfast. I, I'm confident that on that day, I will be reaped by my Lord Jesus, and I will be with him in heaven forever. Well, what, what about your family members or friends? What about neighbors? What about all those people you see just around everywhere? Do you have a burden for lost people? There's a saying, you can't take it with you, but there is something you can take. You can take other believers with you whom you've lead, led to Christ. So, on that day, as you stand in triumph with the Lord Jesus on Mount Zion, will there be others standing with you because you told them of Christ? Will there be others singing that song that no one can learn except those redeemed out of the earth? Are they singing it because you took the time to tell them this good news? You know, it takes time. It takes sacrifice. It takes self-denial. It takes a willingness to be laughed at and rejected by people in this world to take the good news to people. But I promise you that on that day, you will not regret a single sacrifice. You will not regret a single rejection. You'll not regret a single hardship endured because you told others of Christ. May the Lord help us live today in light of that day. Brother, would you come?